Our prayer for illumination comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Please pray with me. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of the holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading can be found on page 13 of your bulletin, and it's Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so, you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. We are continuing today in our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and let me summarize briefly what we've seen so far. Uh, the churches of Galatia, in, in what's modern uh, Turkey today, had been founded by Paul, and many of the Galatians had come to faith. But after Paul left, a, div a divisive sect had started to gain popularity in these churches. Paul calls them the circumcision party. And these teachers uh, were telling the Galatians that Paul's teaching had been uh, incomplete. Yes, uh, Jesus was the Messiah, but in order to be saved, they also needed to keep the Jewish law. So they were teaching, believe in Jesus, keep the law, and then you will be saved. And in response, Paul writes this letter to insist 
that salvation comes by faith alone. Believe in Jesus, he sang, and you will be saved. And then live a life of gratitude in response. The order makes all the difference. It's the difference between two different gospels. And in our text today, as we come to chapter 3, you can hear how passionately Paul feels about the direction in which the Galatian Christians uh, have been going. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? There are three things that we need to grasp today from Paul's argument. Uh, First, we need to understand the folly of the Galatians. Why does Paul think they're so foolish? Second, we need to understand what he says about the power of the Spirit. This is the first time in the letter that he mentions the Holy Spirit, and then he, he does so several times, so it must be important. And finally, we need to consider the life of faith to which all Christians are called, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout it. So three things today, the the folly of the Galatians, the power of the Spirit, and the life of faith. First, what is the folly of the Galatians? And let me begin with an illustration. Years ago, I heard the story of one of the most dramatic ocean rescues that has ever taken place. It happened in 1996 uh, during a round-the-world solo sailing race called the Vendee Globe. And the boats uh, in the race were in the middle of the Southern Ocean when the weather took a turn for the worse, uh, with hurricane-strength winds and 30 to 40-foot waves. One of the sailors named Raphael Dinelli had his boat turned over, his mast broken, and, and all his windows smashed. He was just barely able to turn on his distress signal as the boat began to slowly sink. He spent the next 24 hours nearly freezing to death, clinging to the top of his boat. He was was just losing hope when an Australian Air Force plane appeared and dropped a life raft to him. Uh, He got into it, and 10 minutes later, his boat sank. Uh, But there was a message in the raft saying that another sailor uh, named Peter Goss was 10 hours away and headed towards him. And this gave him hope to last through the second night. Peter Goss had been uh, about 48 hours away originally, almost out of the storm, when he received the message that Raphael was in distress. He immediately turned around and fought through the waves in the storm to reach him. After hours of sailing, Goss finally reached Dinelli and was able to drag him into his boat. He was rescued. Now imagine if after being rescued, after Peter Goss had dragged him into his boat out of the life life raft, and he was finally safe, what if Raphael Dinelli had wanted to get back into the life raft? What would we say to him? You foolish sailors. Don't you understand that you've been rescued? Who has bewitched you? Have you spent too much time in the ocean? 
This is exactly what Paul is communicating to the Galatian Christians. He's not just calling them names. He's urging them to wake up to the true reality of the gift that they've been given, the reality of what God has accomplished in Christ. He makes this clear in what he says next. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The the, the crucifixion of Jesus was not just an example of how to live a, a sacrificial life. It was God acting in the person and work of his son to rescue his people. This is why, as we've been saying, the gospel is a message of good news, not good advice. Not a message of what, what we must do for God, but the message of what God has done for us and for the world. When, when Paul, in his preaching, publicly exhibited or, or clearly portrayed the crucifixion of Jesus for the Galatians, he was telling them about the rescue program. Believe the good news. You've been rescued. And now the Galatians want to get back in the life raft. How could this happen? Well, it has everything to do with how you think about grace. Under the influence of this sect, the Galatian Christians had started to believe that you might come into the church by grace, by this gift of Christ, but in order to stay in, you needed to keep the Jewish law. You came in by grace, but you need to stay in by what you did. Paul says, no, you never graduate from grace. Everything that happens in the Christian life happens in the rescue boat, which means that the life of a Christian starts and ends by grace through faith from beginning to end. Listen to the the questions that Paul asks in in verses 2 to 5. He says, "The, the only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? His answer to these questions is is obvious. It's by believing the message of what God had done in the gospel that they received the Spirit and became Christians And now Paul is urging them not to think that it's up to them to finish the race on their own. They shouldn't start with the Spirit and end with the flesh, their their own human capabilities. Instead, the gospel empowers the Christian life all the way through. This means that the gospel is not something that we believe uh, to get into the kingdom, uh, but in order order to stay in, we need to obey the Bible and, and live for God. Paul is telling the Galatians that God is with them, supplying them with the Spirit, and working miracles among them, not because they've been obedient, 
but simply because they believe what they've heard. Listen to verse 5 again. Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? If this is true, it has the potential to change everything about how we think about our relationship with God. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but uh, throughout it. If a relationship with God is based on faith in what Christ has done at every stage, this undermines any form of, of legalism or moralism which might find their way into our lives. If the moralists and, and the legalists are right, like the ones in Galatia, then the goal of the Christian life is to do your best to keep God's law by living an obedient life. But when we fall short and fail, as we all do, the result will be discouragement and even despair. And when others fall short and fail, as they do, the result is pride in ourselves if we see ourselves as better than them, or anger uh, because we expect others to do better. This immediately raises a question that, that some of you might be thinking. If this is true, and if, if we reject that kind of moralism and, and legalism and emphasize God's grace as being for the whole of the Christian life, then why should anyone obey at all? Do we just overlook wrong ways of living? Is there no growth as we follow Christ? The answer to these questions has everything to do with why Paul starts talking about the Holy Spirit at this point. Notice that he, he mentions the Spirit four times here, in verses 2, 3, 5, and then at the end in verse 14. The power of the Spirit changes Christians from the inside out. To, ex to explain how this works, let me come back to the story of Peter Goss rescuing Raphael Dinelli in, in the sailing race. Let me tell a little bit more of the story. Remember, uh, Raphael had spent nearly 48 hours clinging to his boat and then in a, and then in a life raft. Uh, but after Peter Goss managed to bring Raphael on board his boat, uh, the two men spent the next 10 days together before they reached port. And in an interview, Raphael Dinelli described his experience. He said this, once on board, Pete dragged me down below, took off my survival suit, put warm clothes on me, made me a cup of tea, and then I slept. I stayed four or five days immobile without any feeling in my feet. Pete was in, in contact with the doctor, diagnosing my condition, manipulating my feet, giving me medication. At first, my main feelings had been just enormous relief and intense joy. But in the following days, I realized fully that Pete had done something wonderful. As I lay in the bunk and saw that all the provisions and food were flung all over the boat, I understood how hard it had been for Pete, too, 
He'd been crazy to come back for me. My friendship with Pete now is different from other skippers. Of course, everybody's friendly, but when you're on land, you're all fighting for sponsorship and planning and working. And when you're at sea, there's a certain competitiveness. It's not war, but you all want to be in front. But for Pete and I, all that has been superseded, totally left behind. Here's what we need to see. The role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is like what Pete Goss does for Raphael Dinelli. He doesn't rescue him and then leave him on his own. He continues to care for him. He brings him into the boat. He takes off his survival suit. He puts warm clothes on him and makes him a cup of tea. He's in constant contact, giving him medicine, massaging his feet. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. It's when you begin to see that this is what God is like, that you start to understand why Paul is so animated in this letter. The Galatian Christians were imagining that God rescued them and then left them to get back to the shore on their own. I mean, that would be something great, I guess. He, he had done something for them. But in fact, he had done so much more. He's given them his spirit. And this is why Paul asked them to remember all the ways the spirit has been at work in their lives to know that God was with them. When Paul says in verse 5 that God supplies them with the Spirit and, and works miracles among them, I believe that he has something much broader in mind than what we normally think about in English, uh, about what constitutes a miracle, like a dramatic healing. Literally, in Greek, the, the word for miracles here is simply powers. Uh, through the Spirit, God is working powers among them. And later in the letter, when uh, in chapter 5, when Paul talks about the activity of the Spirit, he doesn't talk about gifts of healing, but the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, he's saying, if you want to know whether God is at work among you, look at what he's done in your life. You haven't done anything to earn God's affection. It's because you believe the gospel that he has begun to change you from the inside out. Look at what the Spirit is doing. When you begin to see the, the fullness of God's sacrificial love, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout it, your heart begins to change. Did you notice what Raphael said about his experience in the days after his rescue? At first, his main feelings were just enormous relief and intense joy. But then in the following days, he began to realize more fully how wonderful what Pete had done for him really was. He saw the sacrifice that his friend had made for him. And this is what changed their relationship forever. This is what Christians need to see, too. It's not enough to simply acknowledge that Jesus died to save you and then continue in your own strength and power. 
It's when you see the extent of his sacrifice, that he was willing to suffer for you, that he was willing to give up everything for you, to become a curse for you, that he was rejected and despised for you, that he took your curse and your guilt on the cross, that he suffered so that you might have joy. Then your heart begins to soften. It's because he was willing to turn around and head into the storm of sin and death that we are saved. This brings us to our last point today. We've seen uh, how foolish it would be to think that we could add to the finished work of Christ. We've seen how it's the Holy Spirit that empowers the Christian life from beginning to end. And finally, let's talk about the faith that marks the Christian life. This life of faith means turning away every day from the other rescue stories that we might tell ourselves in order to rest in Christ alone for our salvation. As he seeks to persuade the Christians uh, about the, the, the Galatians, about the centrality of faith, Paul points them to the story of Abraham. And you have to understand that what Paul does here is an absolutely brilliant move in his argument against the circumcision party. As we've said, those teachers were telling the Galatian Christians that, that Paul might have done a good job of introducing them to Jesus, but if they really wanted to grow, they needed to keep the Jewish law, and the men needed to be circumcised. They were saying, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. Uh, our father Abraham, uh, they would say, was given the right of circumcision so that we could be different from the world around us. And the story of Abraham receiving the covenant of circumcision uh, comes in Genesis chapter 17. But here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul goes back even further to Genesis 15, where God simply makes a promise to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, uh, before the story of circumcision in Genesis 17, shows that Abraham's standing with God, his righteousness, was never based on anything he had done, but only his faith in the promise. And in the rest of this chapter, or this section of Galatians 3, uh, you can see how many times Paul cites the Hebrew Bible, you know, his, his opponent's own authority in order to show that faith was not God's plan B, the faith of Abraham came first in the story before the giving of the law. And the law itself was never meant to bring righteousness. The promise of the Spirit comes through faith while the law only brings a curse. Let me offer a, a simple illustration to, to show the difference here between faith and the law as Paul is describing it. Imagine a hiker in the wilderness who gets lost, but a helicopter is sent to search for the hiker and find him. Because of the, the terrain, there's nowhere for the helicopter to land. And so the rescuers send down a rope, and they call down, climb up the rope. This is the scenario uh, that Paul envisions for the works of the law. Whoever does the works of the law 
will live by them, he says. Yes, the hiker has been rescued, but he or she must still climb the rope in order to be saved. And once they've started climbing, they've got to climb all the way up. Paul's opponents were saying something similar. Yes, the sacrifice of Jesus was to rescue the whole world, but you still must keep the law in order to be saved. Now imagine a slightly different scenario. In this one, the hiker is not just lost, uh, but let's say that uh, he fell into a ravine and broke his arm. Now, uh, when the helicopter shows up and sends down the rope, what happens when they call out? Climb up the rope. In this case, it's impossible. There's nothing wrong with the rope, but it only brings a curse because the hiker is completely unable to climb the rope. Instead, what is needed is for a rescuer to actually come down and tie the rope around the hiker and lift him to safety. What's the role of the hiker in in this second scenario? He simply trusts the rescuer to lift him to safety. None of us here today are, are probably tempted to look to the Jewish law to give us some cultural capital or, or moral worth that we can rely on instead of Christ. But we all look to something to tell us that we are enough, that we're doing enough. The rope that we climb may be our achievements or our goodness or our reputation. Whatever it is, the gospel frees us from depending on ourselves in order to please God. How does it do this? Let me end with this. Uh, many of you probably know the, the pastor, Tim Keller, passed away on Friday and uh, went to be with Jesus. And uh, among the many things that he said, he often summarized the gospel in the following way. He said, the gospel means that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What this is uh, meant to summarize is that the gospel gives Christians uh, both an unusual humility about their own ability and and righteousness and an extraordinary confidence in God's love at the same time. To say that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe is humbling. It means accepting that we are under the curse of the law. We cannot save ourselves. We're like the hiker at the bottom of the ravine with the broken arm, unable to climb the rope. But if you also know that you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ because he came to rescue you, you can be confident in God's love no matter what your circumstances. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus didn't just pull you to safety. 
He took your place on the cross. When you believe that the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you, then you can trust him. You can go to him daily to receive his grace and his help. You begin to realize that what you need more than anything is to know your dependence on him, to rest on him. This is what you're invited to believe today and always. And we're going to sing in a moment, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And the first verse says, Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me before I knew him, drew me with his cords of love, and tightly bound me to him. Round my heart still closely twined the ties that none can sever, for I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks uh, for your grace in our lives, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see Christ crucified and to know uh, the abundance of your love for us, the, the ongoing work of your love and grace in our lives, that you would enable us to come to you with open hands and to receive what you have for us daily, uh, to see you as the, the gracious, loving Father uh, that you show yourself to be uh, in your Son. And so we thank you and we pray that you would fill us with your faith uh, in Christ's name. Amen.